Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, though, many of you will be enjoying an Easter break. We are. That often brings with it some holiday travel by plane, train, or automobile. We'll be taking a look at the surprising resurgence of sleeper trains and some of the unusual ways people make the most of traffic jams. But first, I've got a plane to catch. Last call for passenger Jason Palmer. Could you please proceed urgently to gate six? Jason Palmer, please proceed urgently to gate six. So the best airports are completely unmemorable. You arrive, you glide through customs, you pick up your bags if you have any, and you just go straight through and get into a taxi and disappear. Robert Guest is our foreign editor and one of The Economist's most frequent flyers. Everything's clean, no one hassles you, it doesn't take very long, and you forget about it shortly afterwards. That's how airports should be. But there are still a lot of airports that don't merely fall short of this perfect, unmemorable experience, but are positively exciting. I, I got a sense of how troubling bad airport experiences can be in, a, in an email chain that went around. I put a little description of a particularly terrible airport that I'd just been through into an email, and I sent it to all the editorial staff at The Economist. And obviously, we have you know bureaus all around the world and a lot of uh, uh, globetrotting correspondents. And I asked them to share their experiences of what were the, the most appalling airports that they'd ever been to. And it attracted the swiftest and most passionate response of any email I have ever sent to the staff. People complaining about having to corkscrew down into airports while while people were shooting, people complaining about being robbed in their seats in the aeroplane by the local security forces, and people complaining about how unbelievably boring the, uh, the atmosphere is in Dubai. Then give me some favorites. Which ones stuck with you? So one of the complaints that people had was about danger. Uh, our Africa editor cites Bongi in the Central African Republic, where the fence around the airport has been stolen. So when the big jets come in to land, the pilot has to be really careful with his hand on the throttle in case there are people or goats running across the runway. He has to be prepared to suddenly pull the lever and, and, and take off again quickly. And that's completely hair-raising. And we saw a lot of examples of bullying because you have people in a position of power uh, over often much more fortunate people who are traveling the world, uh, and some of them kind of enjoy it. So our correspondent passing through Caracas, for example, complained of having his, his, his luggage checked again and again by the, uh, the local 
um, security officials who were in fact, you know, organizationally an awful lot of them are complicit in the drug trade that they're supposedly uh, uh, stamping out. You've had uh, a correspondent in the Democratic Republic of Congo talking about the constant demands for presence from the uh, the people whose job it was to let you onto the plane or not. Uh, this is often described as bribery, but it's not. It's a form of you know armed robbery, theft with menaces, um, and that's still far too common in many parts of the world. I've had an experience in in Congo Brazzaville where the crowd control of the uh, the, the official the security forces there consisted of getting big metal buckled belts and whipping them at the the large crowd to drive them back, you know, with a real serious chance of someone getting badly hurt. That was actually quite frightening. And there also seemed to be a theme of general creepiness among the entries. So Pyongyang in North Korea has a really totalitarian vibe. Um, One of our correspondents there noted that the plane played rousing music when we flew over the border into North Korea and everyone was handed copies of the national newspaper and ordered not to fold it since it had a photo of Kim Jong-il on the front page, the, the late dear leader. Robert, a lot of these examples are from badly governed countries, war-torn countries. It, it seems that more fury comes up when, when you kind of expect better in, in better-run countries, in the developed world. Absolutely. Now, if you look at the formal lists of what are the worst airports in the world. What you get is not the ones that are worst in the absolute sense, but the ones that have disappointed the largest number of people. So, for example, Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, because it attracts millions of people for the Hajj, the Islamic pilgrimage every year, uh, and can't cope at all, gets huge numbers of complaints. You also find that people get much madder if they are visiting a rich country and they get service that they would not expect in a rich country. So, for example, in almost any American airport, if you are arriving from overseas, because you have to face the appalling, mindless delays of the immigration service, you have these surly, rude border officials, and there aren't nearly enough of them. And you have these incredibly long waits, which people get very, very fed up from. At a, at a well-run airport like Singapore, if you're in transit, you know, yes, you have to go through security, but you don't have to go through passport control. You just walk straight through, and the whole process can be done in sort of 10, 15 minutes. Whereas in, in somewhere like Miami, it takes so long that you are at serious risk almost every time you pass through of missing your connection. Or losing your mind altogether. Or of losing your mind altogether. Well, I'm, I'm from Florida, so I know the misery of, of Miami immigration. And, of course, it's far worse for non-American travelers. What are some other examples of crappy rich world airports? British correspondents complained about Luton, an airport that fancifully claims to be close to London. One correspondent wrote that going on holiday and returning to Luton is like having a wonderful dream and waking up to find yourself in a puddle under a railway bridge. Okay, so uh, relieve the suspense for me. What is The Economist's choice for worst airport well, in the What world? we did, being economist journalists is we adjusted the numbers for income per head. If you do that, then you're going to give the prize to a really terrible airport in a really rich country. And so, frankly, there's an awful lot of places uh, in America that would be strong contenders for this, whether it's JFK or Dulles with its uh, crazy pods that you get into and uh, you get out at the same entrance and so everyone's blocking the entrance or or LAX. Uh, But we gave the prize to Miami because, frankly, we have yet to meet anyone who's had a pleasant experience going through that airport. Robert, thank you very much. Thank you.
Going through the world's airports can be arduous and frustrating, but travelers with a bit more time on their hands can opt for a slower form of travel. Sleeper trains have been making a comeback in recent years, with upgrades or new routes being announced in countries from Scotland to Japan to Sweden. It seems the rise of budget airlines may have taken some of the steam out of the once dominant rail industry, but the romantic notion of the night train has endured. I love long train journeys. We live half between Scotland and London, so long train journeys, particularly sleeper trains, are a feature of our life. We do it every week. Fiametta Rocco is culture correspondent at The Economist. She's been reflecting on the appeal of old-fashioned train travel in the modern age. They're more intimate than airplanes and less squished up, less uncomfortable. You can walk around, you can sit, you can read, you can watch movies, you can look out of the window. They're a sort of parallel universe. They give you time out of your own busy life. And, and it seems that this sleeper train, sleeper car phenomenon is, is on the rise again. It's extraordinary. You know, Ten years ago, it was thought that the sleeper train, in Britain at least, was going to come to an end. Its days really did seem numbered. But they've had a great revamp. £150 million is being spent on the Caledonian sleeper, which goes from London to Edinburgh and to Inverness. And they now have double beds. They have showers. It's like a hotel on wheels. There are sleeper trains now all over the world. You can, they're the wonderful old-fashioned ones that we know very well. You know, the Orient Express, the Trans-Siberian Express. But there's a three-day train that goes from Perth to Sydney, for example. That's about 4,500 kilometers. There's the blue train from Pretoria to Cape Town. And, of course, there are trains down and across America. So the sleeper train is on the rails everywhere. <laughs> Um, and, and how are these services different from the, from the ones that used to be so popular? Well, they, you know, like lots of things, they used to be quite stark. Uh, you had a little basin, if you were lucky, and that was about it. But now they're really much, much more luxurious. You have trains with double birds, you have trains that have showers. It's not so much how to get to a holiday as a holiday all in itself. I mean, you, you might have expected that, that trains as that slower mode of transport might have disappeared altogether, but they've, they've hung on in, uh, to, to a greater and lesser degree in, in different countries, I suppose, during all this time. Why do you suppose that is? I think it's to do with the sort of growing discomfort of air travel has a lot to do with it. I mean, there was a time when air travel was something rather sophisticated and luxurious and something to look forward to. Actually, I think most people think airline travel now is really horrible. In great contrast to that, you have this wonderful, rather expansive way of getting around, fairly painless. It goes from the center of cities, not from far outside. You don't have to show up incredibly early. There aren't security checks like there are in airports. So it's a pretty nice way to travel. And, and they've inspired lots of artists, you know, as, as the, the setting for countless films, for for countless books. Why, why do you suppose train travel is so evocative for, for the artsy? They came of age at a time when European and American painting, but particularly European painting, it was, it was just before Impressionism. So you, you, it tended to hyper-realism, big images, big pictures. This was the future. You were looking at speed in the face. So you have painters who we very often associate with other things, but who were great train painters, whether it was Turner or Van Gogh or Pissarro. They all painted 
great trains. And then you have sort of slightly less well-known ones. Lionel Walden, for example, painting Cardiff at night. A lot of his paintings are about docks, but a lot of them are about trains as well. Edward Hopper, of course, in America. I think that the place where the romance of train travel really took flight, to use a silly phrase, is in the movies. There you can really evoke the sense of parallel reality, a parallel world, a time when you could shake off boring protocols and anything could happen, whether it was romance, murder, the movies really took you there. And and what about you yourself? Have you had, beyond the sort of the commute, have you had memorable sleeper train journeys? I think one of the things um, about trains that excites all of us is memories of childhood, that extraordinary excitement of staying up late, going to the railway station way beyond your bedtime, being tucked into sleeper trains. So I grew up in Kenya and my favorite train journey is from Nairobi to Mombasa. It's about 12 hours. You get on the train, you have dinner there. Uh, It's already dark when you get on the train. You go to the dining car and um, you get tucked up in bed. You go through the Tsavo National Park. When they built this railway at the end of the 19th century, there were a group of lions known as the man-eaters of Tsavo used to come into the railway carriages and pull people out. So there's that little frisson of terror. You're awake all night. Actually, lots of sleeper journeys, all sorts of things can happen there. One thing you don't do is sleep. That would be a waste of the ticket. Fimata, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. In some parts of the world, traffic jams are as certain as death and taxes. When I lived in the San Francisco East Bay, day in and day out, rush hour turned what would have been a 10-minute drive into 45 or even an hour, a colossal waste of time and resources. But not everyone sees it that way. In Lagos, Nigeria's largest metropolis and one of the most jammed-up cities in the world, some people see opportunity among the stopped cars. In Lagos... Traffic isn't something unexpected that strangely appears when you're, when you're trying to do what you normally do. It's a central feature of your life. This is my colleague Joel Budd, The Economist's social policy editor. He's seen more traffic than I will in a lifetime. He's gone in search of it, in fact. Try to imagine that you're an office worker in the old commercial district of Lagos, which is called Victoria Island, and you're leaving work The traffic will be astonishingly dense. Cars will be one foot or two feet apart from each other, moving extraordinarily slowly. And there will be people going up and down the lanes of traffic selling you things. 
Traveling in the traffic is interesting because here in Lagos, you can get almost everything and anything in Lagos traffic. It's like a mall on its own. But Lagos isn't the only place where you see this kind of impromptu market, right? I mean, what makes Lagos so unique? You certainly see people in other cities selling things by the sides of roads. I was once in a very, very bad traffic jam in um, Abidjan, which is in uh, Côte d'Ivoire. And there were people selling machetes, which I thought wasn't maybe the smartest idea. But I, I do think Lagos... The hawkers of Lagos are particularly creative. They sell a much, much wider range of goods than I've seen in other cities. I was offered uh, dog leads, uh, flip-flops, a stool, a CD rack. I think the most unusual thing I bought in traffic is a pillow and roasted beef. I was never offered a puppy, which I was a bit disappointed by. The most unusual thing that I ever bought in traffic is a dog, a little puppy. My children were crying, they want, ah, mommy, look at this beautiful puppy. So I just have no choice than to buy it for them. There are even people in Lagos who carry around these large inflatable mattresses uh, to demonstrate to drivers what it will look like when it's blown up. You can sell in bed and it's water bed. You, you can use it to stress your back. You can use it at home as well. I have to sell my waterbed at the middle of traffic because this is the particular place customer can see me very well. All people passing, they will see it and they will like it. So that is how they do buy from me. And, and so this sort of thriving market scene that pops up is, is something of, a, of an opportunity then for these hawkers. It's really hard to be a roadside hawker in Lagos, but it's something that they do because it's a reasonably easy way of getting back onto their feet after something bad has has, um, happened to them. Instead of me to be staying at home, it's better for me to come out here and be making some profit. If the traffic jam is not there, a lot of thousands of people, youths are going to lose their means of livelihood. But there's no job. There's no job anywhere. And and what's the the general atmosphere like? What what are the sort of the attitudes of people who are stuck for hours in this stuff? They don't like it, and yet they're surprisingly forbearing. They, They accept that they're going to be stuck in it every day, and they kind of make the best of it. In what way? Well, they... They're not idle. When I'm stuck in traffic, I respond to my, my official emails. If it's the typical bad Lagos traffic, but the non very bad ones, I could make a few calls and respond to some WhatsApp messages. When I'm stuck in traffic, I catch up with uh, social media, uh, look at uh, missed calls, text messages that have accumulated that have not read. I think if you live in a city like Los Angeles or London and you're stuck in traffic, you see that as, as, a, as a delay, a pure waste of time in between being productive at work and being leisurely at home or being leisurely at the shopping mall. In, in Lagos, people get on with stuff. Really, I think nobody likes traffic. And the question is, what kind of use do you make of being stuck in traffic? How do you cope with the inevitable traffic that you're going to have. 
And I think that the inhabitants of Lagos are better at coping with it than the inhabitants of almost any other city. So which cities suffer most from this? Which ones are the most clogged up? I think probably the most jammed cities in the world are Cairo, Jakarta, Lagos, Delhi, Manila, Nairobi, Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, and Sao Paulo. Traffic is so bad in Sao Paulo that there's a very popular radio station which is all about traffic all the time. 24 hours of traffic news. Yes. And among the, the cities that you list, um, what, what do they have in common? The cities with really bad traffic are nearly all very, very crowded cities. Car ownership is rising incredibly quickly. And these cities do not have particularly good public transport networks, apart from Delhi, which does have a very, very good subway now. So they have huge populations, and those huge populations have to use the roads to get around. A lot of people take traffic jams as, you know, this sort of fact of life, mm. um, and it's just sort of the way the city is or mm. because it's, the city is so crowded. What, what can cities do? What are they trying to do to, to fix these problems? There are two really big things cities can do. The first one, more obviously, is congestion charging. So you simply charge people to drive around the most trafficy parts of a city. London, of course, has such a scheme. The other thing cities can do is they can charge for parking. So parking is very often free. And as a result, a lot of the traffic is simply people driving around looking for a space. You appear to be something of a connoisseur of traffic jams. What struck you most about the human relationship with traffic, the way people deal with traffic? One odd thing about it is that they will not pay very much to avoid traffic jams. Toll lanes and toll roads are surprisingly little used. And we know from the way people take toll lanes that they don't value saving time incredibly highly. They seem to value it at about half the average wage rate in a, in a city. That's a very consistent finding. So they hate traffic about half as much as they hate work. Exactly. So as, as, a, as a traffic jam expert, you must, be, you must have heard lots of good horror stories along the way. What's, what's the sort of, I don't know, the, the biggest, the, the longest, the nastiest traffic jam or reaction to a traffic jam you've heard about? People in Manila really like to tell stories about traffic jams. There was a nice story a few years ago where an archbishop was stuck in a really terrible traffic jam. And so he got out. It was raining at the time. He got out of his car and, and went to direct the traffic. And then a couple of years later in Manila, there was an episode where traffic became so bad that the, the man in charge of it was summoned to a studio to explain why it was so bad. And I think he turned up an hour late because, <laughs> because he was stuck in such horrific traffic <laughs> that he failed to make it. Thank you very much for your time, Joel. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 
12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.